Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I am a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. I appreciate you tuning in for this episode of Healthcare Unfiltered, where I am hosting a mother of a patient that died in her first year of age from a form of cancer. Tiffany McConaughey is currently a nurse practitioner in Arkansas. And one day she woke up to find out that her daughter is diagnosed with cancer. We are gonna share her story with you and lessons learned about pediatric cancers, about the fight that we all continue to do, about the desire that we all have to eliminate cancer whether in pediatrics or in adults. But there is no question, when a pediatric patient is diagnosed with cancer, it hits us differently. No parent, no parent should ever bury their child because of cancer or any illness. Unfortunately, these things happen. How did this story transform Tiffany and her family? And what are they doing now to advocate and to help any other patient who is diagnosed with this illness. Thank you for your support. Thank you for tuning in to Healthcare Unfiltered and for being with me and with other listeners on this platform. Don't forget to subscribe, rate the podcast, and let others know. And you can watch all of these podcast episodes on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Without further ado, Tiffany McConaughey, a mother and a daughter's story on Healthcare Unfiltered. Tiffany, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. This is your first time on the show, and I hope to have you back on the show under better circumstances and under better scenarios. But um, I appreciate you spending some time with us. Uh, tell us a little bit about you, as uh, who you are, and uh, what you do day in and day out, and where you practice, and uh, and what got you into nursing. So I am uh, 35 now. Um, I am a wife and a and an oncology nurse practitioner. I started my nursing career in 2009, which is when I started school for um, my associate degree in nursing. I got my RN license in 2011 and went on my uh, master's of science in nursing in 2016. Um, through that time, I worked as an RN full-time while I was going to school part-time and I um, enjoyed every minute of working. I started in oncology um, through HAP stance and fell in love with it. I never had any family experience or personal experience with oncology patients. So I ended up through that um, with that, just working with a friend and fell in love with it. And I have been working in that ever since. Um, currently, I work for Genesis Blood Cancer and Blood Institute, um, which is a part of the American Oncology Network. I've been here a little over four years and I work with Dr. Muldoon. 
Um, we kind of come as a team. So everywhere he goes, I go. We have um, seven physicians in our practice, six nurse practitioners, and we service 10 different um, areas of Arkansas, mostly the central and southern parts of Arkansas. Um, some of us travel uh, two hours one way to get to some of our clinics to help serve the underserved communities in our state. That's amazing service, by the way. And I think really uh, for some of the listeners, we take certain access very for granted to medical care and to oncology care. But there are so many rural areas in the U.S. where it's very difficult to get to. And the fact you go out of your way and try to get to these underserved communities um, is really unbelievable. So thank you for doing that. Tiffany, you got first introduced to cancer, a form of cancer, at a very young age and through your daughter. Mm-hmm. Tell us how this happened. Um, and, I, and, I, and I hate that you have to recount the story because I do know it's very difficult, but I do believe it's important so listeners can understand how we got here. Yes. So last September, September of 2021, I woke up to my daughter having right-sided facial paralysis. Um, Throughout the day, my husband and I noticed that it wasn't getting any better. I thought maybe she was kind of sleeping on it funny. So immediately we said, okay, we're just going to have to take her to the emergency room. Working in the field that I work in, I was quite concerned about a brain tumor. Every mother's worst fear, right? And so that's the first thing that comes to your head. But then you tell yourself, no, that cannot be what this is. It's certainly nothing that bad. We're going to go and they're going to call me down and they're going to say, oh, this is nothing. Don't worry about it. We're going to go home. So that's pretty much what happened. We were evaluated by an ER resident and then the ER attending, followed by a pediatric neurologist who all assured me that she had a simple case of Bell's palsy due to ear infections that she had been having. Over the next several weeks, um, she started to develop progressive facial paralysis, um, starting to affect her other side as well. She was getting more lethargic. She didn't want to eat. She wasn't drinking her bottles. And on Halloween of 2021, I took her back to the emergency room. In the ER, they did a CT scan that showed possible osteomyelitis um, around her ear where she had been having so many ear infections. And they were certain this is what was causing her problems. But they admitted us a little reluctantly, but... They admitted us they were going to put some tubes in, drain the infection, and hopefully get her back on the road to recovery. But being in the medical field, her symptoms did not match the diagnosis that we were given. She wasn't having any fevers. She wasn't having, didn't seem like she was having pain on that side, which you would think she would be pulling her ears or being in some kind of physical discomfort due to that. So I asked for them to do an MRI just to confirm their diagnosis. The ENT and the pediatric team that we were seeing both refused to order an MRI. They were certain that this is all we were dealing with, despite the lack of clinical symptoms that she was having that would support their diagnosis. So I asked for another opinion from the pediatric neurologist. Um, They did agree to do the MRI, and on November 2nd, 
of 2021, um, we found out that my daughter had three brain tumors and multiple tumors down her spine. You've never seen anything like this before in your medical nursing career, did you? No, I solely work with adults. So we pretty much see anyone 21 or over here. And I had zero experience with pediatric cancer patients. Well, I won't say zero experience. I did teach um, RN students at the local community college. I was a clinical instructor and we did have very, um, I taught at the children's hospital. So um, every once in a while we would have a pediatric cancer patient, but it was certainly not my expertise in, in any by any means. So I'm going to assume when you actually heard the news, you, uh, you called people that you trust and ask their opinion, could be some of your doctors, and you may have gone to google.com, try to figure out what's going on there. Actually, the first person I was at the hospital by myself at night, it was 730 at night, and I knew that I wasn't going to get any bad news. So I told all my family, like, this is not a big deal. Y'all go home. We'll get some answers and it, it's not going to be any big deal. So as we were told, she had multiple brain tumors. Of course, I lost it, but I was very insistent that the doctor that was there call my boss and he was very confused because I just kept saying I need you to call my boss right now and he looked very confused that I wanted him to call my boss and not my husband or my mom um, but I needed someone who understood what they were telling me and that was not going to be anybody in my family because no one in my family is medical and especially they don't know anything about oncology. So um, they tell my boss um, kind of what's going on. And he gets on the phone. He was like, don't panic. It could be anything. You know, it could be something benign. It could be he wasn't sure, but he was just telling me not to panic and to not count on anything until we knew for sure what it was. And I didn't Google anything at the time because I didn't know what to Google. You know, you could Google brain tumors, but you're going to get so many different research findings that there, there would just literally be no idea to know what she had. So we waited on the biopsy. Um, she did have some elevated tumor markers and the neurosurgeon and oncologist were fairly certain that she had what's called an embryonal tumor. They did a laminectomy the following day with, um, the neurosurgeon, um, and he got a biopsy from one of her spinal tumors because if he were to get the tumors in her brain, he said he was certain he would cause some deficit. So the spinal surgery was the less risky option at the time. She tolerated that extremely well and didn't get left with any deficits from the surgery, which was a blessing. So um, about a week later after her surgery, we got her initial pathology report, which was an embryonal tumor, not otherwise specified. So in pediatric cancer, there is 20 main tumor types with over a hundred different subtypes. Um, so it could have been several different types of an embryonal cancer. So again, we, I didn't even know what to look up, but I decided at that point, I didn't want to know. I wanted to trust 
her doctor and just let him tell me because what I tell people in adult oncology is there's good and bad statistics and you don't know which side you're going to be on. So the numbers really don't matter. So to me, I just decided that I was going to do the treatments that they recommended and we would see what happens. You know, I like what you said that uh, there's good and bad sides of statistics and, and you're right. Uh, frankly, when you tell a patient, let's say it's, there is a 75% chance of responding to this therapy, you sometimes have some indicators whether they may have higher chance of falling in the 75% or the 25%, but it's still an educated guess. You can never be so certain. And I think that is really important uh, to, to realize that uh, to a patient, it's always a hundred percent. If they respond, mm -hmm. it's a hundred percent. If they don't, it's a hundred percent. I can't only I can I cannot imagine how you coped with this. Did you have? I mean, were, how how were you able to cope? Did you have a support group? Did you talk to people? Like, how were you able to handle this? Especially, you have a child that is not speaking. Like, you know, you're, you're dealing with somebody who you have the bond of the mother daughter, but but you can't communicate verbally. You can't even talk to each other. Yeah, it was really difficult. It was an extremely difficult time. I, I didn't have to look up statistics to know that her odds were not good. She was diagnosed in a metastatic setting. And in the adult world, that's not curable. And I assumed that in the pediatric setting would probably be pretty similar, especially with the brain tumor. So the, the first week was me coming to grips with the fact that she would likely not survive. And I asked her doctor as we went into it, I said, is this even worth it? Do we put her through this at all? And he said, yes. He said, you know, a lot of kids respond really well to this treatment. And so we did, and she did have a great response. So I'm thankful that we did did try we did get several good months how long did this response last so from the time she was diagnosed until she passed away was four months so, so she her she, initial is this, is this is this based on your research tiffany is this is this what's expected um, I mean, is this how fast it is there, there is not a lot of research on this cancer because it's extremely rare and with the rarity of the cancer, there's just not. There's like three papers that you can Google and find, and that's about all. And so it, I couldn't get any good information from anywhere other than the survival rate was extremely poor. Um, most kids, 95% of kids who are diagnosed with um, ETMR are um, gone within 12 months of diagnosis. I'm speechless. Um, it's 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 just very very difficult to um, to do this. Um, after this happened, uh, tell me you you had thought about uh, having an autopsy to do more research. Um, tell me what happened there. So um, Nora was diagnosed with COVID. Um, in the beginning of February um, of 2022. And 
she was asymptomatic. She was tested because we were getting admitted for her stem cell um, collection. And so um, as she was being uh, had pre-testing, um, she tested positive for COVID. She has no symptoms. She had sneezed like one time and that was it. So um, with her COVID diagnosis, they pushed back her transplant and in doing that, she ended up passing away around nine days later. Because of her COVID positivity, um, we were not able to get the research. I autopsy that we had requested um, through the hospital. I knew how important having um, tumor tissue and um, would be to this cancer that is rare. And they refused to do her autopsy because of her positive COVID test, even though she was asymptomatic and it had been almost 10 days since her diagnosis. I mean, I, th I think it's um, it's probably fair to say that transplant probably would not have gonna would not have made a difference. Uh, I mean, if someone is passing away nine days after the possibility of transplant, it's unlikely would have made a difference. Which I'm not sure how this will make us feel. It's still very bad tragedy, but I also think that it was i'm not really sure i mean this is one of the stories where um uh the decisions pertaining to covid was clearly inappropriate this was uh, february 2022 there are no symptoms she wasn't even tested for that she was hospitalized for something completely different serious and then you were agreeing you and your husband that they she can have an autopsy to help medical research and this was denied um i how did that make you feel? I was extremely upset. First, she had had a couple of other viruses that had pushed back her transplant, and then the COVID test pushed it back again. So overall, it was pushed back about a month. And with the aggressiveness of her cancer, um, so we assume when she was diagnosed, that was probably her first tumor. It was on a facial nerve. Um, in her brain and with that um, initial diagnosis from that likely solid one solid tumor she went from one to innumerable tumors down her entire spine so they knew the aggressiveness of the cancer and the transplant doctor did not want to proceed due to and while I understand the rationale um, of not wanting to do it he could potentially cause the COVID to be worse and, you know, it could take over and she would die. But the other option was she was going to die anyway. So to me, with the aggressiveness of her cancer, I felt like it would have been more appropriate to go ahead and proceed with treatment. Would it have ultimately saved her? No. You know, would it have bought her more time? Possibly. Would she have died from side effects from the treatment possibly. Unfortunately, I have seen three children die from treatment-related side effects and not from their cancer since Nora's diagnosis, which has been right out of year. That is, to me, totally unacceptable. Tiffany, this tragedy have um, 
made you think a little bit differently about pediatric cancers, about research, about everything. Tell me, tell me how did this affect how you are approaching and, and you're dealing with cancer. I mean, you're an oncology nurse practitioner. Tell me how this really impacts your life. I knew when she was diagnosed that I had a very unique perspective on pediatric cancer and I developed a knowledge that most people don't get to have being on both sides of the table. So I can understand from a clinical provider perspective and now I can understand it from the patient perspective. So I've been giving a very unique opportunity to make a difference in pediatric cancer. As I researched about pediatric cancer and the disparities that exist between adults and children, I was flabbergasted and frankly appalled by what I read. Um, you know, the American Cancer Society only donates 1% of their funding to pediatrics. The NIH and the NCI um, only give 8% of their cancer funding to children. So we're putting all these stock in our older generations who have gotten to live a life um, and our kids get nothing. They get the bottom of the barrel. And as I'm going through this journey, I would have done anything, any clinical trial, if that meant that my daughter had a chance. And I know that there are all the other parents who have children who have cancer that we will literally do anything. So it's not a lack of having willing participants. So I knew it had to be something else. And so as I researched, I found it's a lack of funding. It's a lack of awareness. It's a lack of drug availability. There's not being molecular profiling in children, which is the huge in the oncology adult world. Um, we call it precision medicine now where we can look at the DNA of your tumor type and know what may or may not work for you. And they found targeted treatments. You know, we have on average four new drugs per month in adult oncology. In pediatrics, there's only been four new drugs in the past four decades. So to me, I knew that I had to do something about this. So I created a nonprofit organization in honor of my daughter called Princess Nora's Warrior Foundation. Through our foundation, we have um, our mission is to bring awareness to help fund research as well as helping support families going through these really hard times. Tiffany, the, the mission of the foundation, just to back up a little bit, it's princessnorafoundation.com. I want to make sure listeners are aware of that. It's her our website is noraswarriors.com, N-O-R-A-S warriors.com. Noraswarriors.com. So they can go in there. The name of the foundation is Princess Nora Foundation. Princess Nora's Warrior Foundation. Princess Nora's Warrior Foundation. Yes. The mission of the foundation is, is it specific to pediatrics, specific to the disease that Nora suffered from? What is the overarching mission that you want to accomplish with the foundation? No, so we want to help any and all pediatric tumor types. So any child from zero to 18, um, we want to help them. We have 
partnered with another nonprofit organization, um, which um, this is not the only cancer wheel fund, but we have funded a, helped fund a preclinical trial for um, her tumor type. Um, this is studying, um, it's called CAR-T, and it has a specific area on the cancer um, that Nora had that seems to, they think that it's going to be effective um, in treatment for this. So this would be in a relapsed refractory setting. Um, but we've helped fund a preclinical trial for that. And we're also in talks right now about um, funding clinical trials for a neuroblastoma clinical trial, as well as um, the research being done to develop a frontline treatment protocol for ETMR. That is amazing. How are you able to spread the word about the foundation and how are you able to get the funding and, and from who? You know, it has been a whirlwind. I have... Our community has just really stepped up in trying to help us and help support us through this mission. I have a strong social media um, presence and following. I have tell, tell us tell, tell us about that so people start following you. What's your social media? Yeah, so our Facebook is um, Princess Nora's Warrior Foundation. Usually on any of the social media sites, you should be able to um, just search our foundation name or Nora's Warriors, and you should be able to easily find um, any. We have all of the social medias, TikTok, YouTube, um, Facebook, LinkedIn. I see I see that uh, on Twitter Instagram. as well. This is Nora's Warrior mm -hmm. Foundation Guide. Okay. Yeah, we have. And our website's probably the easiest place to get to that. It has hyperlinks for all of that. Um, right now, we've actually... so. The research funding is one of my my main goals through this foundation. Um, we also want to help um, support families because many of these families, one of the parents has to quit their job. You have to stay weeks on end at the hospital um, and it doesn't allow for you to work. So if you've got a single mom, she may have zero income after a cancer diagnosis. So we certainly like to uh, help families where we can if they need help paying a bill or uh, you know whatever their need may be so that's another avenue that we um, do but our most recent project that we announced last week um, we actually announced it on the date Nora was diagnosed um, on November 2nd we are doing a an initial diagnosis kit it's called Nora's 1211 project um, that's her birthday and what this project is going to do is we are wanting to have a huge basket delivered to um, a family that gets the, a cancer diagnosis. And it's going to be a, like a large folding wagon with just basically full of all kinds of things, um, anything you could think of. Myself and several other cancer parents helped me um, decide what needed to go in these baskets. Um, we're getting a tablet, headphones, blankets, slippers, a comfy pillow, um, coloring books for the kids, toys, a sound machine, just it's so many things that we have. We're also in process of developing a research, uh, 
resource manual um, to give to the families with other foundations names who help families support. Um, we've partnered with the Arkansas Blood Institute, Beads of Courage, um, Bringing Up Rosies, um, and several other foundations. And all of this stuff is going to be put in the same kit because we want to make this diagnosis as easy as we can for these families. It's a shock and you have no idea what you need or what you want. So we want to make that a little less harsh for the families and for the ch children who, um, who get diagnosed. So that's, that's one of that's, our, that's uh, really ama amazing effort. Um, Tiffany, you, you mentioned something earlier, just want to get back to it and I promise I won't let you stay for long, but, uh, your sense is that there is less research dedicated to pediatric cancers, and you suggested that maybe there is, uh, even for precision medicine and molecular profiling, it doesn't happen as often in uh, patients with pediatric cancer. Um, is that just uh, a sense that you have, or do you actually have data, statistics, like do you research that? So I don't have a lot of data or statistics nationally. I did have a talk with um, my daughter's oncologist. I do keep in touch with him trying to figure out what our foundation can do to help Arkansas Children's Hospital as well as any other hospitals in the country. Um, somehow we've made it to a list in Colorado, which we found out about recently, which is so awesome. Like I can't even describe to you like how excited I was like we didn't start that they just found us and so anyway that's um, wow, off the point wow. but um i have been talking with nora's oncologist and when she was diagnosed i asked if they were going to send her tumor um for molecular profiling and the response i got was we don't normally do that in kids so um as i that comment just went over and over and over in my head and I was like why and then I said well I want this done for my daughter which unfortunately it came back with um she didn't have enough tissue um so the test couldn't be run but I was flabbergasted that this didn't happen in kids because we've been doing this so whenever I started oncology 11 years ago they would run two or three genes on a lung cancer patient. So they'd do an EGFR and um, an ALK. And that was the two things that we'd send for. And then um, a little bit later, PDL one and ROS1 came out. And then now we're at 400 gene sequencing to get targeted treatment therapies for these patients. And so I think to myself, how many targets are we missing in these kids who don't have access because they're not being tested. And so while the drugs might not be approved, say they have a HER2 mutation and we have all these drugs out there at our disposal who we can petition a drug company and say, hey, we know your drug works on this. Can we please use this on this patient? And the majority of the time they're going to say yes, because it's, why would they not? And so that's how we get precise treatments that actually help. A lot of times tragic stories lead to something good comes out of it. And if anything, hopefully your dedication, your devotion to pediatric cancers and to trying to make a difference is going 
to pay off. And if you're able to contribute to one life saved, it's well worth it. So I want to congratulate you on everything that you are doing. Um, Is there anything else that uh, we need to share with listeners, with the audience that you believe is worth sharing and I may have just overlooked uh, asking you about? Um, Oh, you did ask me about how we raise money. So we have events every so often. Um, We have hosted an educational nursing event, which was probably my most lucrative project yet. Um, We raised about $55,000 from that. And um, we did a 5K here in the town that we live in. And we raised um, $34,000 doing that. Um, people have just been super gracious with donations and we apply for grants and I have a team of 13 people who, how, how are you able to do that while you're doing nursing and you're seeing patients? How, where are Um, you finding the time? You don't sleep. (laughs) You, no, I'm serious. Like this is, that's a lot of work and effort. I mean, and, and you, we have raised a little over a hundred thousand dollars. Um, since May. Do you think you're going to be doing this full time at some point? Yes, that is my wholehearted goal is to make this a national foundation like Alex's Lemonade Stand and Solving Kids Cancer. And we've recently joined um, the Coalition Against Childhood Cancer. Um, it's an organization that brings together all of the foundations and like-minded people to share information and to bring awareness and create advocacy and research funding. So we're very excited about all the opportunities that that's going to bring us. Um, Just getting our name out there, people like you who are allowing me to come talk about my daughter's story and our foundation to bring awareness and to just get the word out there. It's not all about the money, even no, though no, that no, does no. play uh, a, few, a huge role in what we're able to accomplish and bring about new treatments. Along with that, just letting people know that it can literally happen to anybody. I oh, yeah. have no family history of cancer. My husband has no family history of cancer, and yet we lost our daughter to a horrific brain tumor. So, one day I was a cancer. One day I was going along and I was oblivious, and the next day I was a cancer mom. So we can't keep our head in the sand. I know that we see these cute little St. Jude commercials and these bald-headed kids that are smiling, but that is not what pediatric cancer looks like. I know a lot of people put a lot of stock in St. Jude. I live very close to St. Jude. Um, we're about three hours from Memphis, and that's probably one of the most common questions we got asked is, are you going to St. Jude? But what people don't realize is number one, you have to be accepted to go to St. Jude. You can't just go to St. Jude. That doesn't, they don't just take you. You have to be part of a clinical trial to go to St. Jude. And then they're they're a wonderful organization. Don't get me wrong about that. But I think that a lot of people put stock in some of these cancer facilities like St. Jude that that's not, they're not the end all be all for pediatric cancer. And we've also got to support a lot of these other organizations and be careful where you're putting your money make sure you know where your money's going when you pick a nonprofit to donate to, you know, I used to be 
And again, I love the American Cancer Society. They do a lot for adults, but I donate a lot to them. But I had no idea that they didn't support pediatrics as much as they did adults. So, you know, I think just knowing whatever nonprofit that you pick, knowing what they support and how they um, spend their money is important. We're very transparent within our foundation. 90% of our, our funding goes to research and um, parent funding and advocacy. We, nobody that works with me in our foundation, out of the 13 of us, we are all volunteer. Um, nobody gets paid. Um, our money that we spend in, within the foundation is to further the foundation, to improve our web design, to make sure that our accounts are in good order. So what we spend internal money on is not paying anybody, but it's just to make sure that we're still able to get the word out. It's it's a lifelong goal that you are going to achieve. And I have no doubt that you are going to, uh, to get there. I cannot thank you enough for giving me an opportunity to get to know you and to get to know the story. And uh, I hope that we'll be able to disseminate this information broadly and to a lot of folks. And uh, I hope that uh, you achieve your uh, dreams as you really continue on this mission. Tiffany McConaughey, thank you so much for visiting with me on Healthcare Unfiltered. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, everyone, thank you for tuning in and thank you for being part of this podcast. I appreciate your support. I appreciate you being with me on today's podcast. And don't forget to support Tiffany and her foundation. This is a very heartbreaking story. Any support could help. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and to tune in every Tuesday morning. Uh, let your friends and colleagues know. Watch the podcast on my YouTube channel and visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying from Socrates. The only true wisdom is in knowing you know nothing. Until next time, take care.